thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Thank you for downloading this podcast from The Reedy Clubby Show on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. For more, please go to 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Okay, I've got lots of SMSs and tweets about what we were talking about earlier. When is it the right time to speak out? Even Mbazi Mashilo has posted a tweet. I'll share them all with you just after 10 o'clock. But now, uh, let's get cleverer. The Naked Scientist is brought to you by The Rand Show. It's showtime, 18th to the 28th. 28th of April at the Expo Center Johannesburg, Nasrek. And of course next week he'll be performing with his colleagues in front of a live studio audience. You see we've been announcing this for so long and people are getting in touch with us at the last minute. Really can I please bring my children and of course my heart is tender towards children and I almost want to bypass the, the, the red tape and say yeah bring your children. So we'll, we'll see what we can do. We'll see what we can do. But Chris good morning. Hello. Thank you so very much for joining us. We're all very excited about next week. And I understand there's a problem with last week's podcasts, postcard, post, podcast that it wasn't put on the website. We'll sort it out and see if we can, uh, we can put it there just after the show. Thanks for letting us know. Anyway, Chris, in vitro vaginas, uh, what's this about? Uh, yeah, sounds interesting, doesn't it? What this does it one? mean? That, well, scientists in Mexico and in the States have grown new vaginas for four young women. They did this eight years ago, and they're now reporting on what the outcome has been. So this is a group in Mexico and a group at Wake Forest University in the States, and they sought to help four young women who were aged between 13 and 18 who were suffering from a condition called Mayer-Rokitansky-Kuster-Hauser syndrome, also known as vaginal aplasia. And this is where some people, probably about between 1 in 1,000 and 1 in 2,000 young women, are born with either an inadequate or underdeveloped or absent vagina. So they only have the outer part of the genital organs and the vagina inside is missing and it's because of an embryological defect, a, a duct system that normally fuses together during development to form the vagina and the uterus fails to either form or fails to merge in the midline or just breaks down for some reason. Mm-hmm. And it leaves people with this, what would otherwise be a terribly disabling situation, because imagine the emotional consequence of that. And up until now, there's not been really very much that could be done. And what this group were able to do is, having recruited these four young women, they took biopsies from the vulva, and the tissue they got there included both some muscle and some skin cells, some of the epithelium that lines the genital tract. They were able to get the cells from that biopsy, grow up the muscle cells and the skin cells in a dish. Then they seeded those cells onto a special collagen scaffold. They had made a vagina-shaped cylinder of collagen, the connective tissue in the body. They added the cells to it Mm -hmm. and then kept this in an incubator in the laboratory until the cells took and invaded into this scaffolding and replaced the collagen scaffolding with new connective tissue. 
Then they implanted this structure into each of the young women. So imagine they're getting their own cells. They're getting a structure made with their own cells. There's no problem with the, with the immune response or anything. And then they followed them up for eight years and did various scans along the way so they could see how this was developing and whether there were any health problems associated with it. None of the young women have had any health problems whatsoever. The new organ has grown as they have grown at the right rate and in the right way. And all of them, it says in the Lancet paper this week, have mm. now successfully become sexually active and report extremely high levels of sexual satisfaction, which is, of course, the, the important thing here. Yes. So it seems like you're actually now in a position to be able to produce new organs for people. We've done it for wind pipes. I think this is the first time anyone's ever done it for another kind of pipe at the other end of the body. But a, a lovely outcome shows what can be achieved with modern technology. Fantastic. changes people's lives. I'm, I'm totally fascinated. But then, Chris, we also have um, something called sex change. Uh, men undergo it, women undergo it. Uh, we've spoken about this in vitro vaginas for women, but can uh, can you grow an in vitro vagina and uterus in a man? You're thinking, could I make myself a new vagina for a man? But the thing is that actually the, the conversion of going from a man to a woman is a lot easier than the other way around because what they do is to invert the scrotal sac because there's a nice excess of skin there. And so what they can do is to actually put that inside the body to create a tube going inwards to create a vagina. So it's actually easier, although not trivial, to fashion a vagina from what men have than to go the other way and try and turn what women already have into a penis for what, what started off as a woman who wants to become a man. Much more difficult to do it the other way around. Hmm, very interesting. Okay, our lines are open for you. Give us a call on 021-446-0567-011-883-0702. I am taking your SMSs as well on 31702 and 31567. You can also tweet your questions to The Naked Scientist um, and uh, also use my Twitter handle, Reedy Kabi. Chris, I have a question. Obviously, my life is revolving around a baby right now, so I often wonder... How do we assess the memory of a baby? In other words, if baby knows that at a certain time she does get her breast milk, she does get her bath, and yet a few minutes before that they're crying for that thing, don't they remember that there's a pattern that every night this is what happens? So I am going to get my feed. I am going to get this. Do babies remember what happened yesterday or 30 minutes ago? Um, Not really. Okay. It, it doesn't really you don't start to form really good, strong memories of things until quite a bit later on in life. Although there are some people who have got very early memories. I, I've got some memories of, of being under the age of one, um, probably wow. because the experience was quite traumatic for me because uh, I was a complete pain in the ass when I was little <laughs> and I was a nightmare to feed. And I used to drive my mum up the wall and I used to sort of flick food around the house and all over the room and all over her. And I can remember having a cereal bowl of cereal and, and milk turned upside down on my head. Mm -hmm. And and I have this very vivid memory of this stuff coming down my face. And I said to my mum a few years ago, I've got this really funny memory that I can't really account for. Can you explain this? And she went a bit white and said, well, yeah, that did actually really happen. Wow. And you know, most of the time you don't have memories under one, but I think because it was so unusual for this to mm. happen to me, I, I think I probably did manage, it made a, probably a big impression on me, both on my head and on my brain. Um, but most of the time the circuits that lay down memories are not well enough developed until we're at least two or, or maybe even three before long-term memories are established. That's not to say that other kinds of memories aren't established, because if you think about it, a baby learns to walk, and mm -hmm. they're doing that by nine months, ten months. And this is a motor memory. It's learning how to 
operate groups of nerve cells and make them talk to each other in a certain way. You could say that's a sort of memory. Babies then learn words. They learn to understand words and they learn to speak words. That again is a kind of memory. So that sort of memory, we do appear to be programmed to learn very early on. The kind of episodic memories where I ask you what you were doing last Tuesday, mm. that sort of brain pattern is less well developed at an early age and that takes a little bit longer to come along. And babies are pretty good at patterns because they know they're going to get fed at a certain time, they know when they should be getting fed because their body is telling them, I'm feeling hungry. And the only problem a baby has is how to communicate, I'm feeling hungry, or I want my bath. And the only way they can really do that is by screaming their head off, and then you have to guess. That's part of the challenge of being a parent, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Our lines are open for you, 021-446-0567, George in Somerset West. George, hi. Hi, really. My question is is about zero gravity. I recently saw the movie Gravity, and I've had a lot of fun since debunking a lot of the stuff that happened in it. Um, but my specific question is, is, is a fire in zero gravity, is, is it possible? To my mind, it's not possible, because you need conviction, you need rising um, uh, gases to make it work. Um, so, and in the movie there is a fire, and then they also have fire extinguishers, which sounds like a very bad thing to have in space because you can have either lots of CO2 or lots of fine dust powder all over, which is not um, doesn't seem like a good idea in a spaceship. Um, what does the naked scientist have to say about that? Mm-hmm. Uh, do you know, George, it's so funny you say that because when I was flying to Chicago recently, I looked at the in-flight... Uh, menu of films and that was on there and I thought right I'll watch Gravity because someone had asked me a question about it at a talk I was giving an after dinner talk in in Cambridge at the beginning of of the year and they'd asked me a question about it I thought I'd better gen up on this film because maybe other people will ask me questions and I watched it and I had the same thought and I thought this this fire if you look at how the fire spread through the spacecraft it's it's got an upwards and a downwards direction to the flames hasn't it and also the fire extinguisher I thought well what on earth are they doing with that that's not how you put a fire out in the in in space like that because exactly as happens to her when she fires the fire extinguisher she gets a big push the other way and ends up bashing into the other side of the space rocket it's exactly what would happen but you're quite right and in fact we've asked students applying to cambridge university at their interviews can you tell us how a candle works and then what would happen if you took your burning candle assuming you could just took it onto the space station and lit it up there in in microgravity what would happen and most of them don't get it right but the answer is it wouldn't work and the reason it wouldn't work is because as you say when you've got a a source of combustion you've got a source of energy or heat and what that's doing is making the gas around it hotter and bigger in volume and therefore less dense therefore it rises and cooler denser air pulled down by gravity displaces underneath bringing in fresh oxygen to keep the fire going if you're in space, there is no up and down because everything is, is weightless, everything's in free fall, and therefore there is no convection to bring in fresh cold air loaded with oxygen to sustain the combustion process. So a fire, in the strict sense of the word, isn't going to happen in space like that. Okay, that was a question from George in Somerset West. Thank you so very much. Um, let's go to, uh, is it Neville? Neville in Bloberg. I suspect we've had this question before. Sounds familiar, but let's try. Neville, hi. Hi there. Just a quick one. Do we always see the same side of the moon? We seem to always see the man in the moon. Do we ever see the other side of the moon? Or does the, does the moon stand still or does it rotate like the Earth does? 
Thank you. Oh, hi, Neville. Yeah, lovely question. And the answer is that by some fluke, the moon is tidily locked to the Earth and is turning, but turning at such a rate that it always shows us the same face. And if you do this as a sort of thought experiment or you get an apple and an orange from your fruit bowl, uh, the Earth is turning inside the orbit of the moon. So the Earth spins around once every 24 hours, so that's sort of irrelevant. But you're seeing the moon as it goes across the sky. The moon is taking 28 days, give or take, to complete an orbit of the Earth. And as it goes round on its orbit, it is turning on its own axis very slowly. So one rotation of the moon takes 28-ish days, and it just so happens that it rotates at just the right rate so that it gets back to the position it started at um, when, it, when it completes its rotation, so that it's always got the same face showing towards the earth. Thank you very much. Um, who came in first? Gidiboni. Gidiboni in Kimberley. Hi. Hi, Rudy. How are you? Good. Great. Uh, I just want to know why it's very rare if it's not happening at all that there are naturally born disabled animals as compared to human beings. So animals never... born with a disability. Okay, Chris? So are you asking, Kitty whether whether such animals just don't exist or, or why we don't see them? Why we don't see them? Okay, a uh, very good question, and this is really the basis of, of the process of natural selection. Humans are social creatures. We look after each other. We have a welfare state in many countries. We have a health service. We have people creating food at the, in their farm and then sharing it amongst the community. And this means that if someone is less well-off or less fit or less able to defend themselves or less able to fend for themselves or feed themselves, someone else helps them. And this means if you have some kind of life-changing disability, you lack a limb or you can't think straight for yourself, have some kind of neurological problem someone will help you usually and we look after each other so a disabled person isn't disabled in their ability to to have a life and and have an existence and make a meaningful contribution to society in their own way because society can adapt to accommodate them and help them in their needs with animals there is often much less uh, of a social structure like that if you are not strong enough then you will become someone else's lunch and mm. that is the process by which nature selects for the fittest and the best in the population mm. and makes us all genetically fitter and although animals do have social structures they don't necessarily look after each other in the same way as we look after each other across the board like that so you will as the weaker specimen because if you have a, a leg problem or something you are gonna get eaten and when I was in Zambia um, on a bush camp a uh, few years ago there was an impala knocking around who had a gammy leg and we were watching these lions creeping up slowly on this impala and, and it was obvious who was going to become lunch that day because they're going to catch the guy that can't run away so fast and that's why you don't see disabled animals because they become someone's lunch pretty quickly yeah just watch uh your wild uh Kitiboni, the Nas national geographic channel uh, on wildlife and you really see um that dictum coming to life survival of the fittest Let's go to um, George in Bedford View. Hi. Hi, Rudy. It's George speaking. How are you? Very well. Welcome. Good, thanks, uh, Rudy. I've got a question for Chris. Um, I had a watch which I, uh, which were the battery and flat back in 2004. Uh, ten years later, I took the watch out of my cupboard and um, it sort of tapped it and it started ticking again. And it's now been ticking since the 20th of March, basically on a flat battery. 
Wow. wow. <laughs> well, I, <laughs> you're a lucky man. Um, <laughs> a couple of possibilities. I mean, one of them is that it, it may be that, in fact, the battery never went flat at all and that maybe something else went wrong with the clockwork and it could have been that there was some damp or some moisture in it or a bit of dust or something which jammed the clockwork and that by taking it out of the cupboard and giving it a good tap, it dislodged something. The other possibility is that you warmed it up Batteries are a chemical reaction, and there's something called the, I think they, what do they call this, the, the Q10 in biology, but for every 10 degree rise in temperature, the rate of a chemical reaction usually doubles. So if you warm the watch up by putting it on your wrist or playing with it in your hand, you're going to transfer some of the heat to the battery. This means the chemical reaction that's driving the electrochemical process in the battery that produces the power that powers the watch is going to speed up, and this means it might get some more juice out of the battery. Uh, other than that, I can only say a miracle has occurred. And, <laughs> or someone snuck in there and replaced the battery in your watch without you knowing. That would be my, my guess. Very interesting indeed. Okay, let's take a break. Seth and Tembani, I see your calls coming to you in a moment. Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Who came in first? Let's go to Seth. Seth in Montague Gardens. You're about to make us all hungry. Ask your question, Seth. Hi, Rini. Hi, Chris. Mm. Uh, my question is the home popcorn machine. Um, how do you get the flavor to stick to the popcorn? Um, <laughs> I've tried it, trying, uh, putting the spice on when it's hot, when it's cold, tried um, uh, thicker spice, tried uh, finer grounded spice that just doesn't stick to the popcorn. I'd love to have that problem, Chris. Oh, that's, that's a good question, Seth, and I don't know exactly how they do it industrially because they do get it to coat really yeah. rather well, don't they? Um, the, the cheaper way of doing this is what you see in the cinema where they just pop the corn and then they sprinkle the stuff in from the top and the, the heat of the popcorn melts the sugar into a sort of treacly mixture all, all over it. Um, but I don't know how they do this industrially. They might have some kind of spray technique where they spray the sugar solution onto the popped corn. So I think they pop the corn first and then they spray the stuff on in a mist i think that's that would be the way i would try and do it i might try and do some experiments some quite tasty experiments to see if i can work it out oh that would be nice maybe you must do it next week uh, chris i'll help you along i can i can see what my <laughs> role would be in that experiment let's go to tembani in orange farm hi hi Reggie. um i want to find out if you take a, a plastic broccoli um filled with water then you open a, a dark room on the top of a roof. You insert that broccoli half top, half inside the room with water. When the sun shines in that dark room, there is a light coming inside, like a, it's a bulb. What is the secret there? I'm not really sure. I can understand the observation you're making. So you get a bottle of water, yes. and you, you or you half fill a bottle with water. You fulfill the bottle with water, then you open yeah. the roof of a house uh, where the bottle can fit. Then that bottle, you fit it inside the half top, outside the roof, half inside oh, the I house. I understand. I've got it. I get it. I know what you mean. So, in other okay, words, the, I don't. See, the top of the, the top, right, I know what he means. Okay. So, the top of the bottle can see the sunshine, Sign, but, but the, the bottom, bottom of the bottle oh. can't. It's in the room, mm-hmm. yet the sun is shining through. The, the bottle and being transmitted by the, the water in the bottle so that it looks like the sun is shining through the bottom of the bottle. Is that what you're getting at, Timbani? Hey, Timbani? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, okay, that's what right. it is. Right, good, yeah? okay. This, this, you can actually use uh, a bottle of water like this to make your own fibre-optic demonstration. And, in fact, in the book we wrote, which is called uh, Maverick Science, you can get in South Africa, it's a little ex- book of experiments, you will find this experiment in there. And what we did was to drill a hole in the 
bottom of on the side at the bottom of a, a lemonade or you know a fizzy drink bottle fill it up with water and then cover the hole with your finger temporarily shine a, a flashlight or a torch in the other side of the bottle then take your finger away from the hole a stream of water comes out and drops down below the level of the bottle but you can put your hand into the stream well below the bottom of the water and you'll see uh, where the water is hitting your hand a white light from the torch which is nowhere near your hand and this is the phenomenon of total internal reflectance and what is going on it's the same science that means that fiber optics can convey information round corners round bends as pulses of light and effectively the inside surface of the mirror of the, of the water stream the column of water is behaving like a mirror and so when the light hits the inner surface of the water where the water meets in this case the size of the bottle but in the case of the stream in the air where the water meets the air then it causes refraction and the light it can't come out of the water so it has to bend inwards and it reflects off the interior surface of the water back onto itself and it goes all the way down inside the stream of water and it's total internal reflection and it's as i say how fiber optics work thank you very much timbani very fascinating question indeed call us again is it uh gomu in lodium gomu that's right hi uh hi chris Mm. my question is we are building a, a temple tower uh five meters high but we find the birds are nesting there. How do we keep them away? Sorry, say that again. You're, so you're building a tower. Yeah, it's about five meters high. Which and is you want to keep off. the birds away because they're nesting. Yes, now we're going to keep them away. Because it's... Um, mm. uh, Do, can you redirect them also? Okay, I don't know. I was thinking, uh, what about someone in the garden with a shotgun? That might work. <laughs> um uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, you could buy a crow-scaring machine, which lets a, a, a big bang every so often. Some people resort to these things where you've got something which is spinning in the wind and, refl- and has reflective surfaces, and it creates lots of, of light reflections, which the birds really don't like. Um, but it's quite aesthetic. It looks quite pretty. So you could maybe put one of those on the top of your tower. Um, people wanting to deter pigeons and things tend to put those long, spiky wires that stick off. They look like the head of a broom, and you put them around all of the surfaces at the top of your roof or tower so there's nowhere for them to perch. So you could also consider that. Other people, depending upon what sort of birds you're trying to get rid of, but other people put sparrowhawk models uh, on, on their towers, and uh, little birds come along and they see this, what they think is a big sparrowhawk, and they think they're going to get eaten, so they go away. Thank you very much, Komo. And uh, Chris, well, the next time we speak, you will be in Joburg, we'll be face to face, and we look forward to that. Oh, I'm really looking forward to it. It's going to be so cool. And those who didn't get an opportunity to book their place for next week's uh, uh, discussion, they can come and see you at the Rand Easter show and uh, you'll see the Naked Scientists live in action. I'll give you details about that. But visit the, uh, the Rand Easter show. It's a very interesting time of the year, Easter time, the Rand show in full swing. Just go there and you will see the Naked Scientists as well. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Reedy. Have a great weekend, everyone. Bye, bye, bye. And we will podcast this conversation and last week's one as well. We're very sorry uh, for not doing that. We'll do it today. What's happening now? Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.